have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Proverbs. A reading of God's Word comes to us from the book of Proverbs as we continue reading through this wonderful book. We'll read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 28 through 35. Lend your attention, this is the very Word of God. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason, when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. O you enthroned above the skies, Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, our Father in heaven, that we can call upon you as Father, you, one who made all things, uphold all things, provides life to all, and provides your people with the supreme demonstration of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will withhold from us no good thing. And so we would ask for that most excellent thing, understanding of your word, that it might penetrate to the heart, that you might be pleased to attend the reading and the preaching of your word, with the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit bringing forth those choice gifts of knowledge and faith and hope and love as our eyes are open to the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love that you have poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our salvation, the joy of every longing heart. Feed us now, O great God. Posture us in utter dependence upon your provision, which you alone give. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can turn to Exodus chapter 20. It'll just be one verse. It's always good to get in the habit of turning pages in your Bible. As we continue through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we're in the Ten Commandments. We took a look at the preface last week, and now we turn our attention to the First Commandment. I'll go ahead and read the verse, and then we'll look at Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm just going to read 45 and 46. But first, God's word. You shall have no other gods before me. Thus ends God's word. Question 
45 asks, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. In question 46, what is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Amen. Ended up doing something a little different, and we're going to try it out. A lot of material ended up on my desk from my hand on these questions. And so, going to spread a few what the older guard called sacred discourses over these questions. When I married Samantha, I took a vow before God and man that in devoting myself to her as her husband, I was forsaking all others. That is a remarkable and wonderful vow. Others did not cease to exist, mind you, when I took that vow. But they were dead to me with reference to this unique position of wife. And I vowed therein to turn my back on all of them. A husband turns his back on all except his wife in that regard. And just as the wife is the sole object of the husband's husbandly love, so also the true and living God is the sole object of the church's comprehensive and unqualified love, trust, loyalty, worship. The first commandment states plainly, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the alone object of our worship. This God not only is the true God against all impostors, a true statement of whether anyone believes it or not, he also calls us to know him and to own him as God. The call in the first commandment is thus to acquaint ourselves with this God, which assumes that he has revealed himself sufficiently such that we can be acquainted with him. This he has done in creation, providence, and supremely the redemption and revelation of the fullness of his glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to acquaint ourselves with him and to yield ourselves fully and unqualifiedly to him as God. Before we open this into its particulars, I want us to first notice 
That even though we have been betrothed to him, these are the images that scripture uses. If you're going to find the two fundamental images that God uses to press this staggering relationship which we stand in with him. It is the relationship of a husband and a wife, Hosea. The relationship of a father and a child, also Hosea. (laughs) These are stunning pictures of our relationship to the God who made all things. Who turns the hearts of kings whither he will. Who causes empires to rise and empires to fall. To stand in relation to this God as a wife stands to her husband, as a child stands to his father, is a wonder too marvelous for words. This first command calls us to own that reality. To acquaint ourselves with the wonder that is this God. And to own him as our God. Know and acknowledge him as God. But first, beware that though this glorious reality has been given to us as his church, we have an ongoing temptation to false gods, don't we? That even though we have said our yes and amen to the Lord Jesus Christ, very much engaging in that vow that takes place, Vowing to forsake all others, the others don't cease to exist, do they? They continue to issue their siren song, seeking to lead us into the rocks of the tempest. Like the husband or wife newly married, Scripture calls for vigilance and watchfulness over our hearts, lest they begin to drift towards imposters. False gods, that which is no God. This is a sad story of Israel, isn't it? We see it played out in such vivid characters in the Old Testament. Israel was surrounded by pagan worship. False gods, all all the nations had their gods. Each nation had lots of gods. The sad story of Israel was that though they had seen the true and living God, they had been instructed to remember daily the magnitude of his power and goodness that had been displayed for their behalf in the promise to Abraham and the realization of God's might and the redemption from Exodus. They were, they, they were to take this upon their hearts and their minds. They were to press it under the minds and the hearts of their children. They forgot. One ways they forgot is that they saw the glittering appeal of the nations. They wanted to be like them. They wanted kings like the nation's kings. Give us Saul. They wanted gods like the nation's gods. Give us Baal. The sad story was they consistently strayed, though they knew the true and living God, the maker of heaven and earth, had taken them unto themselves. Can you imagine that? You should be able to. For though we stand in a more advantageous position than they, we know the same allure to that which is not God. Now many of the old gods are gone. I've yet to meet a Marduk worshiper. Although some of the old gods remain. 
the old paganism is resurrecting, as it were, or so the whispers go. But it doesn't mean that the old gods are dead. The old gods just take new and socially acceptable forms. We have our American gods, don't we? Certainly we do. It would almost be easier if those American gods bore that social stigma of old. If they were as plain in their demands, signaling that indeed this was spiritual. The old names of Odin and Zeus and Marduk are gone, but the gods remain. Scripture tells us human strength can be a god. Scripture tells us human possessions can be a god. Christ calls wealth mammon. Pleasure can be a god. Paul talks about those who make their belly their god. Appetites, sensual appetites, food, drink, sex. These things are powerful, aren't they? It's powerful. And then there's the god of this world. who uses those things to accomplish his foul purposes, leading people into sin, darkness, deception, destruction. So perhaps it's fitting first to consider the wonder of our king. Because the God of this world accosted him in the most violent terms. Do you remember that? In God's providence, just like last week, we saw Christ thrust into the pit of weakness, and the God of this world said, I'll give you everything this world has to offer. It's all mine. I give it to people all the time. <laughs> I give pleasures. I give for now all the time. It's mine. I'll give it to you. Just worship me. And he didn't. We do all the time clamoring after the pleasures that he delights to offer, to work his foul purposes. Christ was in dire straits, the epitome of weakness. And he was offered the world with all of its glittering pleasure, all of its passing fancies, which to a man on the brink of starvation would have been no slight temptation. And he said, get away from me. And he quotes this command. You worship the Lord alone. Him alone you serve. The Lord's entire life was a fulfillment of this command. Everything he did was the expression of perfect love for his father. Everything he did was an expression of perfect trust in his father. Everything he did was an expression of perfect loyalty to his father. Everything he did was an expression of perfect obedience to his father. Every breath that he took, every thought that he generated, every desire of his heart, every act, of his mind and his hand was perfect worship of the true and living God. 
I don't even know how to begin to penetrate that wonder. <laughs> even the best iterations of worship and obedience that come from hearts tainted by sin is so cut with our corruption and imperfections to imagine one who executed with the fullness of what he was, the fullness of what he had, perfect loyalty and love. Well, we're just going to have to wait to glory to get our minds into that. But then we will. And I imagine the praise will intensify for this one who is our king. The reason that Christ can gather worshipers is because he is a perfect worshiper. The reason why Christ can bring us to God Ransoming us from our foul, foul, false worship is because his entire life was a perfect oblation to the Father. We are the company of the redeemed, purchased by the one who knew no other gods, save the true and living God. But even as the company of the redeemed, we feel this allure, don't we, to these false gods? We see his loveliness. I trust you've seen his loveliness. Have you seen his loveliness? Have you seen how much better he is than all of the glittering offerings of this world? But even as the company of the redeemed, even those who have tasted that the Lord is good, we're still vulnerable to this siren sound. First of all, that's absurd and it makes no sense and it's terribly sad. That we've seen the faithful husband. We know his unflagging love and faithfulness to us, and yet we're still wandering. Oh, it's hard to frame it in that metaphor, isn't it? The beloved apostle writes in 1 John 5 20 and 21, and we know. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Those are some thick verbs there. No Understand. Cognition on steroids. <laughs> Notice in these verses how near we are to the true God. It's important. Israel received its command and they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. Quite a display before them fire, shadow. Rock burning. They knew the true and living God. Salvation. Same salvation that we enjoy. They enjoy. But there's, there's distance. Do you remember? There's, there's distance. There's a sacrificial system. It's like, okay, I can't quite get as near to God as I might like. And even the nearness that the high priest enjoyed going into the Holy of Holies was not without risk. And this he only did once a year, and to presume any other time was to hazard death. 
So yes, possession of eternal life, but something between them. John says, we are in him. (laughs) What lies between has been eclipsed. It's nearness. Note how near we are to God. If you have a little Bible and you write in it, you can go ahead and write next to these verses. We are near him. So this call to watch out for idols has this that's distinct from Israel's position of old. They were still far-ish. They weren't pagans, mind you. They weren't the Gentiles. But they weren't this near. We are near in Christ Jesus. But notice also, you write this down next to these verses. We are dear. We are near and dear. The Father speaks to us most tenderly, even in his warnings. Little children, John says. That's not the heart of the apostle solely. That's not even just the heart of the Christ solely. Who calls us children? It's the heart of the Almighty Father. What manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? And we are little children, the Father says. Doubt not my love. I've given you my son. I've made you my children. I will not undo what I have written in spirit and blood. Now watch out for idols. Stay vigilant, my dears. For it is a hard journey. That's how he closes. Notice last, small, in a dangerous world. We're near, we're dear, and we're small. Little children. Jesus says, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Here he says, I send you out as children among strange gods. The parents of older children can testify to this. The very prospect of it is enough to keep me up at night. There's nothing more terrifying than for a parent to send a child out into the world. Why? Because you as a parent know the hostilities of the world. Not in full but better than they. And Jesus says, it's actually worse than even you know. For it is a world of strange gods that seek to work not a temporary destruction, but an everlasting destruction. It is a world of strange gods who work strange dark purposes under a stranger God, even still the God of this world. A child cannot stand against a God unless he belongs to the one who has conquered all false gods. Children, did you know that this is the name placed upon you in your baptism? The king who slays false gods. That's the name that you bear. Week by week, you get to learn more about the wonders of this king, this God. Parents, it would be a terrifying prospect to send our children out into the world arrayed in hostility, more dreadful than you or I have the imagination to consider. Indeed, it would be undoing. 
maker of heaven and earth weren't our Father. And if the Lord Jesus Christ who intercedes for us even now weren't a king who commands false gods, how does the temptation end? Get thee hence, Satan. And he goes. Go. You don't have authority where I am. You don't have authority over those who belong to me. The passage ushers us into the strange tension of our earthly sojourning, violently accosted, violently outmatched, and yet mightily protected, <laughs> bearing the name of God. We take note of the danger without, and we avail ourselves of the strength in him. Not within, in him. Noting the danger without, we avail ourselves of the strength in him. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark our vulnerability to false gods. Mourn that they have an allure for our wayward hearts. And cry out to the one who has conquered this world. And it's God. And who has promised to see you safely through this world of woe. But let's press into this question of idolatry. That's what John says. Little children, beware of idols. What is idolatry? Heidelberg Catechism question 95 helpfully asks this very question. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts. In place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So it's entrusting, it's entrusting ourselves to anything that's not God or anything that's beside God. A sort of double-mindedness there. But it's a matter of one's trust. We might add it's a matter of one's loyalty, one's love, these realities that emanate from the very core of who we are. God is the only one who demands and deserves all that we are. He's the only one before whom you can yield yourself without reservation, without qualification, without hesitation, comprehensively. All that you are, all that you have, yielded unto him. When we hear the word God, usually we think personal being, right? When we hear the word God, we think personal being, and that's true. But the question invites us to hear it as a position as well. Like husband is a position. Father is a position. In fact, husband and father are the positions and the persons which some of the strongest responsibilities to and claims upon those in relation to him. So God designates both personal being and a position. And it is the position. It is the only position which exerts unqualified and comprehensive demands upon you. A 
unqualified and comprehensive demands upon you. All that you are, all that you have belongs to him. And he calls you to yield to him. The catechism suggests this reading. It says our duty is to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God, that's personal being, and our God, that's position. So we can notice that this is a comprehensive claim upon hearts and mind. Or rather, it is a comprehensive claim upon the whole person, body and soul. You can actually hear this uh, concern in the final phrase of the command, before me. This is perhaps the strangest interpretive question. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what does this mean? What can reasonably be understood, at least from a grammatical level, in several ways. The phrase can mean above me, but the sense there that God simply insists that he retain supremacy among other things, among other gods, is theologically unacceptable. The prophet Hosea uses the image of husband and wife for Yahweh's relationship to his people. And the husband's concern is not simply that he be regarded as first among many. That is not the prophet's suit. The husband's concern is that he be the first and the only in his wife's wifely gaze. The phrase can also mean something like unto anger. No other gods you shall have unto provoking me to anger. And that's true, but it doesn't seem to get the full sense of this phrase, face. Because that's the word, face. And so that leaves before me, leave, meaning something close to what Calvin explains. God would have no companion intruded upon him and placed, as it were, in his sight. And that's how the catechism interprets it. If you look a couple questions later, it says that this phrase before me brings us to consider that God sees all things. That all things are manifest before him. Our thoughts our affections, our motives, that which we can disguise from others and that which we can even sometimes disguise from ourselves, they're all plainly before him. So this call penetrates to the heart, this call to know God and to own him as God. For he alone is worthy of such a comprehensive claim upon us in our love, loyalty, and trust. You can recall that sad scene from Anna Karenina. Anna brings Vronsky, her lover, into her true husband's home. Tolstoy masterfully puts the heinousness of this scene right in your face. The affair itself is heinous. That everybody knows about it is heartbreaking. But there's something more heinous and more heartbreaking still about bringing this imposter into the very home of the true husband. And there making a flagrant mockery of his love and rightful claim 
upon his wife. We are the home of the true and living God. That's what Paul says. You are the temple. What is a temple? That's where God lives. <laughs> you are a temple. The holy temple. The spirit indwells you as individuals. The spirit indwells us as the people of God to admit into our hearts affections, loyalties, trust in that which is not God is to make us spiritual adulterers. That's a hard face on our sin, isn't it? That's a hard lens on our wandering hearts. Let it sober us. It's such a humbling thought. And we're all laid low together. John Calvin writes, we ought to be shocked by such a menace. As there is not one among us who does not invent idols in infinite numbers. We don't bring just one Vronsky into the home of our true God, but hundreds. In this sense, we are all of us fallen women. Charles Dickens wrote with such tenderness towards fallen women. If you read David Copperfield, perhaps the tenderest portrait that he draws is of little Emily. Little Emily was seduced by the villain Steerforth, and then abandoned at his leisure. When she ran away with him, she betrayed her good adoptive father, Mr. Peggotty. She betrayed her simple but good fiancé, Ham. And then Mr. Peggotty set up on what he called his errand of love, such that he would not rest until he looked her in the eye and said, all is forgiven. Come home. And he retrieved her. And he brought her home. You read the story of Emily's end, and she was a paragon of gentleness and kindness and devotion unto doing good to those who the world deemed as low and cast off. Why? Because she knew the ruin into which she had been plunged. And she knew the magnitude of love which restored her home. Does our gentleness abound? Do people know us by our gentleness? Do people know us by our kindness? Our tender-heartedness? Do people know us by our devotedness to good? Indeed, our zeal for good, as Titus 3 calls it. Isn't that the basis of our life together in so many passages in Scripture? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. You had fallen into a plight worse than little Emily by your adulterous heart. You have been restored to a position more wonderful than little Emily. Christian, is your heart tender? 
Is your heart moved to the point of breaking by the magnitude of love, not of good Mr. Peggotty's errand of love, but of the maker of heaven and earth's errand of love? Sending forth the beloved son to bridge an otherwise unbridgeable chasm to bring you home and say all is forgiven. I suspect we all have reason to be humbled in this regard. So then what does he call us to? He calls us to know him and to acknowledge him. That's what question 46 says. The first commandment required us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God. Knowing and acknowledging God hold together. Knowing and acknowledging God hold together. They even got the same four letters. One of them is just jammed in the middle there. <laughs> Knowing and acknowledging God hold together. There's a sad situation presented in 2 Kings 17. Do you know this part of the story in the book of Kings? After the fall of Israel in the north, the Israelites were taken away largely, and new residents were settled in the land from all over Assyria's empire. And these new residents worshipped their gods, and so the true and living God sent lions to kill them. The king of Assyria then sends an Israelite priest to go and teach the new inhabitants about the God of the land, as he styles him, and what he requires, so that the lions will go away. <laughs> and how does the situation end up? Verse 41. Then these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. This strange syncretism ends up. This strange mixed situation now would characterize the rest of Samaria's history moving forward. Where there was some knowledge of God. There was some true knowledge of God. So much that he can use this incredibly loaded phrase, fear the Lord. These nations feared the Lord and also served carved images. So there was knowledge of God, but there was no acknowledgement of God. And Paul seems to envision a similar scenario in 1 Corinthians 13. Here he sets forth the danger of knowledge that does not find its discharge in love. He writes, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I gain nothing. The full flowering of knowledge is love. Love is the fruit of knowledge. So what does he say? He says, pursue love. What does he say to pursue? Look, I'm not making it up. I just read the verse. <laughs> what does he say to pursue? To pursue. What does it mean to pursue something? I don't know. I've chased my kids around. Pursue them. Pursue hopes. Pursue something means to set your sight on it and go after it. To pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Meaning what? These two things hold together. An earnest pursuit of love empowered by the growth in spiritual knowledge. One does not desire knowledge solely as an end. Objectionable? Is that unobjectionable? Glazed? Sleepy? 
One does not desire knowledge solely as an end. One desires love, pursues love, and understands that there can be no true love without truth and knowledge. And that's what the first commandment accosts us with. We are called to know and acknowledge God. There is no acknowledgement of God without at least some true knowledge. And there's true knowledge showing itself in true acknowledgement of God. I'm already over time. I still have one more point to make. And I cut like all this material short. Well, you're not going anywhere. You're Minnesota. So one more point. (laughs) How do we heed this call to know and acknowledge God to be the true God and our God? First and foremost, by looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Anyone who says they know God and rejects the Son does not know God. (laughs) Jesus' testimony in this could not be plainer. The testimony of God's word could not be plainer. Our Lord says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. One must come to the Son to know the Father. Only the Son can reveal the Father. And to know the Son is to know the Father. That's staggering. And it's exactly what Jesus says, John 14, 8. Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you want to know who the Father is? Look at the Son. The Son who gives his life for his people. The son who uses his power not to turn stones into bread for himself, but multiply loaves and fishes for those who are lost like sheep. That's the father. It's our king. It's our God. Would you know the father? Look at the son. John 17, Jesus closes his high priestly prayer, praying, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Oh, knowledge and love again. We have known God in Christ We continue to know God in Christ because Christ continues to make God known so that the love the Father has for the Son may abound in you, in me. Man, can we lament? 
just for a second. Man, I got a PhD. I have so little love in my heart. What do I really know? Your knowledge adorned with the beauty of love produced by the Spirit. I think we all have room to lament in this regard. Like a lot of dispositions attend our hearts these days. Fear. Suspicion. Cruelty. Arrogance. So little love. Oh, that we were given the mind to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we would be given the mind that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. What lives of love would then erupt in the face of such staggering knowledge, of such a staggering God? And how shall we come to know more of this God of love? Well, here I stop. And I'll take up that question next week. But this week, beloved, mark your heart's tendency to trust and desire and give undue thought to that which is not God. You will find it plaguing your heart this very week. Mark that the true and living God alone has full right and title to all that you are and all that you have. He has it by right of creator and by right of redeemer in the blood of Jesus Christ. And let the grace and mercy extended unto you as fallen women soften your heart daily, fueling your kindness and gentleness towards others. And above all, if you would know God, look to the Son, for in him God reveals himself in the fullness of his glory and grace. Not once, but day by day by day by day until we know as we are known. Join me in prayer. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is truth. Press it upon our hearts. May we carry it with us as we go about our earthly way such that we are made readier and readier to yield to you our lives of reasonable worship. Keep us from idols, O Lord, these false gods with their false claims. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Mm.